listening to The Cycling Podcast. Hello and joining you on October the 9th on a day in fact when a team named the Denver Disruptors became the most clicked on outfit on a popular cycling results website thanks to Israel Premier Tech work experience boy Riley Sheehan more on that later and after another week in which professional cycling was disrupted disturbed discombobulated disconcerted by the fake news fusion of two superpowers my name is Daniel Freeber I am the host of this episode of the cycling podcast in which we'll recap all of that Hail two new world champions, maybe sing one last verse of Thibaut Pino, and yes, discuss other events from Il Lombardia, aka the race of the still alarmingly green and sun-kissed leaves. Joining me to do all of that, enthroned in sun-kissed, not Watford, is Lionel Burney. Hello, Daniel. And also joining us from Soyer in Mallorca, fresh from a weekend vicariously spent in Italy, or rather we spent it in Lombardy and in the Veneto, thanks to his commentary, it's the always sun-kissed Rob Hatch. How are we doing? Buongiorno, buon dia, buenos dias, good morning, whatever it is, don't know where I am anymore. How are we all doing, chaps? And, and, did you confess, um, be honest with me, did you start to find... The, the constant, incessant, particularly if you were um, on social media on Saturday and Sunday versus choruses of Tubopino slightly, just slightly grating um, after a couple of days. Uh, it was like all of those things. It was quite charming to start with. Then it became slightly irritating. Then I was absolutely enraged by it. And then by the end, I was quite enjoying it again. And I did enjoy the the scenes of Mark Maddio. Um, I mean, really you know he was sort of banking memories for life there wasn't he on uh, on on the finish of the race in Italy there were some good songs there were some better songs there were some slightly more imaginative songs I believe there was one in particular um, I don't know to what tune this was sung but there was one that went something like a beer for the Yumbo riders um, <laughs> that of course a reference to the Tour de France in which Yumbo Visma's head honcho Richard Plugger expressed his well, disgust, maybe is too strong a word. His bemusement at some of the Krupama FDJ riders indulging in some beer. It might have been non-alcoholic beer, actually. I think they claimed at the time um, during a Tour de France rest day. But that was quite, you know, that was quite amusing. I'm sure there were some other good songs, an imaginative bunch. 2,500 fans, I believe. Um, they this is sort the, foo- of the footballification. Bergman. The footballification of professional cycling again, isn't it? Ultras and 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 terrace chants and banners the ultras who probably won't be remembered too fondly by the residents of central bergamo because they were up in the middle of the night with the flares and the megaphones and apparently i mean i wasn't on the ground i was commentating remotely at the weekend but they were waking everyone but five and six a.m with the the loud ailer again shouting bergamo get up I mean, there was a big buy-in, wasn't there? Like you said, two and a half thousand fans and most of the team staff down the years, ex-riders were back as well. It, it looked like a great party. Is it not a surprise, though, that the Pinot Ultras would get up at five or six in the morning? Because, you know, they'd be so used to living the Pinot lifestyle, they'd probably have to go and let all the animals out and, uh, you know, refresh the water and, and, and give them their feed for the morning. 
Most people in Bergamo, most natives, residents of Bergamo are, of course, up at five o'clock um, on a building site. So goes a famous Italian stereotype. Bergamo, the people of Bergamo, the hardest workers in Italy, um, often not often sort of made fun of by other Italians um, for how hard they work. Um, Lionel, you mentioned goats. There was a lovely, there was one of the n- nicest, funniest, most imaginative sort of homages to Pino was from the organisers of the Giro d'Italia, wasn't it? Um, RCS, they gifted him a goat. Um, I believe that it was sort of delivered to his farm I don't know whether it was on Friday or Saturday but there was a nice video of his mum sort of welcoming the new goat Vittoria into the fold and Vittoria joining the current herd that he has there that he will be going back to today I think on Monday on what he referred to as the freedom train um, the train taking him out of professional cycling for good anyway chaps oh, I, love, talk- I love the freedom train I'd love a season yeah, ticket on be, the freedom train you'd be permanently on the freedom I mean, this, train this is, this is cycling in a nutshell though isn't it I mean what do you get a man who's already got loads of goats I know another goat well, chaps, um, we're going to talk a lot about Lombardy today. That's one of the main topics of conversation for this week's pod. Um, before that, I'll deliver a news roundup in which I'll touch on Lombardy before we go into more detail later. Um, lots of racing to catch up on in a busy sort of last, well, it's the last fortnight of the season, isn't it? Um, last World Tour races, last big races of the season um, are taking place. Well, Guangxi is about to take place. Um, anyway, last week's episode dropped on Wednesday, if memory serves me. So we'll start from last Thursday and Paris Bourges. That was won by Arnaud Demar ahead of his near namesake Arnaud Delis. Meanwhile, in Italy, on the Gran Piemonte course, restarted for the umpteenth time, Andrea Bagioli produced more balsam for the anxious minds of his pseudo-quickstep teammates at the centre of those merger rumours by out-sprinting Mark Hershey and Alex Aramburu. Mark Hershey, incidentally, who's had an outstanding autumn. Uh, if you look at his results, I don't think, or I think he's scarcely finished out of the top 10 in any of the races that he's done in the last couple of months. Uh, most of the Lombardy top dogs sat that one out and well two days later it was a glorious autumnal day that gave us the backdrop for the final monument of the season. I'll just very briefly mention some of the key moments and incidents. An early crash for Remco Avenepoel which left him beaten up on one side of his body but not broken. Then a very early move from Ben Healy of EF Education first easy post on the Paso de la Crocheta, just over 80 kilometers from the line, which allowed him to bridge up to the early break of the day. Behind the peloton was being pulled by Jumbo Visma, and in particular Jan Tratnik. I think most of the riders in the bunch were using toe straps and down tube shifters when he started his vigil on the front. That meant Healy was unceremoniously swept up on the lower slopes of the Paso de Ganda, where we expected a rog-pog showdown, but both actually looked to be struggling, or at least biding their time when Alexander Vlasov, medallion swinging, channeling Slick Rick, uh, attacked, and Remco was distanced irretrievably, irremediably. Ultimately, Vlasov and Pogacar would lead over the summit just a few seconds ahead of Rog et al. And Pogacar seized on some hesitation just as the group was coming back together to launch what proved to be his solo winning move, 30 kilometers from the finish, despite an attack of the cramps on the approach to Bergamo. The ascent of the Bocola, the climb into Bergamo's old town, indeed proved 
most memorable for the welcome or rather farewell Thibaut Pinot received there from his traveling army of 2,500 fans. Pinot would finish the race in 37th place incidentally. Meanwhile or rather a few minutes before that Andrea Bajoli won sprint for second 52 seconds behind Pog and Primoz Roglic was third. That was Saturday in Lombardy. Rob can you tell us what we saw or didn't see rather a few hundred kilometers east of there in the Veneto at the World Gravel Championships on Saturday and Sunday. Yes, inexplicably and disappointingly, we didn't get to see what happened on Saturday. But I can tell you that Kasia Niviadoma from Poland, representing Canyon Shram Racing on a road career, was there on the gravel becoming a world champion. She beat Silvia Persico and Demi Follering with Dutch places for fourth and fifth for Castellan and the new European champion Vibas as well. Nivia Doma's first win in about four years, always there or thereabouts, never able to pick something up, but she won in style and alone after a really tough course. Lots of climbs, a few of them on the road, like the Murrica del Poggio, famous from the Giro d'Italia as well, among the Prosecco vines in the fields and sometimes looking like they're in back gardens as well. And then the day after, Daniel, we had victory for Mate Mohoric. He again went alone from a group of three. He had been with Florian Vermeers, formerly a podium finisher in Paris-Roubaix, and Connor Swift, a winner of Troubourg-Léon, off the uh, road in the last few years as well. Mohoric becoming a world champion in the elite men after being a road world champion in the youth categories a decade before in Italy as well. There was a fourth place for Alejandro Valverde, who beat gravel specialist Keegan Swenson into fourth place. Rob, you were working on the broadcast of the race on Sunday. There was a lot of teeth gnashing, justifiable teeth gnashing, a lot of frustration about the fact that the women's race was not broadcast at all. What do you know about why it wasn't broadcast? I mean, well, just to preface that, one thing I do know about the World Gravel Championships this year is that there was a very sort of last minute, 11th hour change of organiser. The race should have been organised principally by Filippo Pozzato, the former Italian classics maestro, who is, of course, organising a couple of races this week, three races, in fact, um, Giro del Veneto, La Serenissima and the Veneto Classic. And he originally got a two-year contract. He organised last year's World Gravel Championships and was all set to organise this year's World Gravel Championships. And that changed, and as recently as August the 4th, I believe, the uh, organisation responsibility for organising the World Gravel Championships was passed over um, to a, a very small organisation, sort of a local cycling club, um, at the head of which sits a, a guy who is a banker. He's a full-time um, banker, Massimo Panigel. And, well, he had, what's that, 4th of August, he had two months, effectively, to organise all of this. Whether that had something to do with why the women's race was not broadcast, I don't know. But what light can you shed, if any? I didn't really know too much about what was happening or what wasn't happening until about three, four days before, Daniel. I knew that, 
obviously I was down to commentate on the Giorgio Lombardi on the Saturday for the men anyway, so I wouldn't have been working on the women's broadcast. I was initially told three or four days before that there was a bit of chaos behind the scenes and my my employers for this broadcast, Discovery, Warner Brothers Discovery, who own Eurosport and GCN, where it was going to be broadcast on the, the digital platforms there on GCN Plus and Discovery Plus, were suddenly told that there might not be a broadcast at all, men's or women's. They were confused by that because, of course, having bought the rights to the UCI races that are put out every year. And it seems to me that the UCI didn't really enforce their rules that you need to to have equal broadcasting between men and women for each and every event that they produce. I would imagine that in, in all of these things, it comes down to money, Daniel. It's a very expensive business, broadcasting bike racing. You've got to pay for satellite time, which is the biggest expense. You've got helicopters, motorbikes, all this sort of stuff. You've got a full crew to pay for, directors, trucks. It's an expensive job. However, <laughs> if you're going to do it, you have to do it properly for, for every elite race, don't you? And it does. it's a very, very bad look putting a little bit of a broadcast together for the men and nothing for the women. And, and I think the UCI, albeit reacted very late with this press release they put out on Saturday. And again, wasn't, wasn't a great look that it was reactive rather than proactive. But um, they have now stipulated that every world championship in the future for the gravel events needs to have equality and coverage. And if there's one positive com- thing to come out of a disorganised shambles at the weekend in terms of the television coverage available, it's that, I think. Grande casino, huh? Um, eh, eh. But Rob, you mentioned there the difficulties of uh, broadcasting a bike race generally. Um, in addition to that, there were, there were a lot of new sort of ingredients um, that needed to be employed here, weren't they? In terms of, well, to be honest, when I watched on Sunday, the men's race, I was pretty impressed that they had managed to broadcast the race as well as they did. Given, I mean, I thought it was very, I mentioned how recently uh, the organisation was passed over from Filippo Pozzato to uh, Massimo Paniguel. And it was a whole new route that had to be created. Now, that is a part of Italy, a part of the world where they're trying to develop gravel riding. They're trying to attract tourists with gravel riding. And there are a lot of nice kind of courses, infrastructure that's being um, that's being set up and promoted uh, in that light or um, to that end. But I was quite impressed with how ambitious the course was in terms of it wasn't just you know sort of circuits of a three kilometer loop um on on a well sort of packed and well curated um gravel road it was it was sort of single track it was vine roads probably they had to cross a lot of private land there were a lot of places where i would have i would imagine reception for whether it be you know satellite internet everything was it was an issue yeah, it was extremely difficult. I think I think I, I said during the live broadcast, I was really impressed with the creativity in the parkour. It was interesting. It made me want to get on my bike and ride it. I think what we have to work on with these gravel events is one, taking them through areas where you can broadcast the spectacle and two, make it entertaining, make it entertainment. And I think the fact that they had the climbs towards the end made it possible that you were going to have quite an interesting race and things could happen. We saw the mechanical, didn't we, for Florian Vermeers. And I gather, although we didn't see it live, there was a bit of movement in the women's as well because Follering came back from a group where she'd been behind. Castellane was up there before her. So there was a bit of movement there, but it would have been very good to see it. Um, in terms of 
broadcasting. I think we need to get rid of the age groups. I know it's in the spirit of gravel and all that sort of stuff, but if you're going to have an elite race on the telly, if you're going to have a product that people are going to buy into and watch all around the world, you don't want to be watching good amateurs and semi-pros, Joe Bloggs from down the road, getting in the way of riders towards the end and on the you know on, on the parkour you, I, I'd go and have the women's and men's elite race on the same day on the same parkour a bit like we had on the Europeans last week and I thought that was a fantastic broadcast because you could flip flop from one bit of coverage to the other you could keep up to date with it and as long as they're not programmed to finish it's exactly the same time you're not really going to miss too many big incidents but again in that broadcast last week in Belgium you had this issue where you had the 45 pluses and the 50 pluses getting in the way and elite riders being able to draft for a while. It was bizarre, I thought, and it's not something I don't think that you can have. When you're talking about elite sport, it just seems a bit strange. Nothing wrong with the 45 pluses, Rob. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I watched it again out of curiosity. I mean, as a TV spectacle, uh, really, we didn't see the race, did we? I mean, we saw the last three in the race, uh, Mohoric, Vermeersh and Connor Swift were basically away and, and together. You know, the, the kind of the big stories, if you like, how Alejandro Valverde was getting on and Wout van Aert, who had a big crash early on and uh, took a long time getting going again. You know, those two stories really didn't have any coverage at all. So kind of journalistically, it, we weren't terribly well served because of the logistical difference, difficulties of uh, showing an event of that nature. And uh, I think it's always going to be hard to capture the imagination when you switch on and realize that you're down to the last three and there's what an hour or so to watch or whatever it was and i mean the first we you know the uci i feel you know it, as the custodians of the sport the, the world governing body yes they want to surf the wave of um you know gravel the popularity the participation it's a fantastic thing and getting the big name riders some big name riders from the world tour to take part is uh, clearly a feather in the cap not just for the discipline but for the the uci we know how important gravel bikes and gravel racing and gravel events are for the bike manufacturers. I don't think it's any um, coincidence that both uh, Nuvadoma and Mohoric come across the line and, and lift their bikes up in the air uh, at the finish line because it is a showcase for the, the tech and the kit as well as the, the athletes and the course. And I agree with you, it looked fantastic. I'd love to go and have a day riding that kind of yeah. uh, terrain. But I think if you get a rider like Wout van Aert on the start line and literally don't see him in the broadcast until he pops around the corner in a surprise eighth place, 10 minutes down on the, on the winner, and uh, it's probably not serving the event terribly well. And just taking a helicopter view, the UCI has allowed a situation to arise where a classic with over 120 years history, Paris Tour, which we'll talk about in a moment, I'm sure, which has added gravel sections in uh, recent years in order to kind of reinvigorate itself as a, as a race that was struggling a little bit, taking place on the same day as the UCI World Gravel Championships. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that that's taken riders from one to another, but it's just an, um, another kind of uh, indication of muddled thinking or a lack of clear thinking about how the calendar all goes together. And, and because there's a lack of thinking on the macro level, that's why uh, situations arise like a late notice change of 
organizer and a problem with broadcasting there's there needs to be somebody in control of the entire elite level of the sport looking at how everything men's women's and and all the different disciplines dovetail together for um well for, for the good of the sport and the good of the people who want to watch the sport really I have to say from the broadcast angle, I know I and the whole team behind me were really frustrated about what happened building up to that. And even just from a telling the story angle, you're talking about Wat van Aert there, Lionel. I had no idea where Wat van Aert was during the whole of the race. I heard he'd crashed and I was as surprised as everybody was to see him come round the corner there. I mean, just to illustrate how difficult it was. And, and again, apologies if we didn't manage to tell the story well enough for people at the weekend, but I couldn't even get hold of a printable start list to see who was there. I was looking desperately to find information on the parkour. And, you know, if this is a world championships, if you want to show it off to the world, and you cannot provide people with the information they need to tell the story. It is so, so the difficult. Of gravel, stop being such a snob. Well, stop being well so this uptight. is what people keep telling me, Daniel, but if you want it to be <laughs> <Jesus>. professional... <laughs> I mean, you know, you've already you've already uh, criticised the the you know Keegan Swenson for drafting on the wheel of the forty plus riders. Mm. I guess Valverde <laughs> Valverde won his age group, didn't he? <laughs> he certainly did. The more shambolic it is, the more faithful it is to the spirit of gravel. Um, anyway, chaps, I enjoyed it. I thought, I mean, what we saw, it would have been nice to see the women's race. Um, but I I was quite impressed. I, I expected the worst and. Um, purely from an aesthetic point of view you know the things I always talk about light quality backdrop mm. you know oh it looked great as I said the creativity where it was it was fantastic but I think the spectacle and the, the, the how we tell the story of that spectacle needs a bit of work also there is something to be said there is something refreshing about coming to a race as a spectator with a sort of beginners or a kind of naive mindset um, I am very unfamiliar with gravel racing and some of the intricacies some of the technicalities and Rob before we started recording today we talked about how it was a it was a bit of a fait accompli um, the, the, the winning move was down the road however I don't know I'm not familiar enough to know how likely it is that for example someone does have a mechanical problem and how much jeopardy there is so for me there was a bit of suspense also just seeing how gnarly and treacherous the course was in the closing kilometers it looked to me very plausible that Mohoric was going to have a problem the way he was descending I mean it was brilliant um, it was jaw-droppingly brilliant but it looked very risky so that kept me gripped as well it was incredible I almost made a phone call during the mid-broadcast on mountain bike downhill commentator to get on the broadcast because I mean it was pretty hairy wasn't it watching him going down there but I mean hat off to him he showed what an incredible bike rider he is a few more bits of racing to clear up on Sunday we had the one day classic that ends the French season you've already mentioned Lionel Paris Tour final race for Greg Van Avermaet and Tony Galopin among others as alluded to in my intro it was one sensationally by the 23-year-old American Riley Sheehan, son of US uh, former U.S. Postal and Saturn Pro Clark Sheehan. Uh, does anyone remember him? Um, I think he rode one season for U.S. Postal. Yeah, he was in the team 1996. Uh, so that was kind of the the point at which U.S. Postal was trying to make the leap from domestic racing in the U.S., uh, making their first forays into Europe. Certainly Andy Hampston was on the team that year. Tyler Hamilton, of a young Tyler Hamilton, was on the team. And what I do know about Clark Sheehan is that, uh, from a little bit of research, he won the prologue of the route to Mexico while riding for Saturn in the early 90s, beating Laurent Fignon and Gianni Bugno. And then later in the race... 
a drunk driver swerved into the peloton, causing a massive pile-up, and Sheehan came off worst. He was apparently pinned between the driver's pickup truck and a press vehicle and suffered three compacted vertebrae. So, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, that's just from a bit of research into his career. But, I mean, obviously, Riley Sheehan, his son, is, uh, well, he's inherited his dad's passion for cycling. And his dad's passion for cycling was, as a native of Denver, was was born out of the Coors Classic, I guess, in the late 70s, early 80s. Yes, Lionel, he is a sometime, or he's been plying his trade for most of the year for the Denver Disruptors, who ride in uh, it's in the National Cycle League, it's called, isn't it? Um, I think well-publicised difficulties that that particular um, series, organisation, league is currently experiencing in the United States. But he was riding yesterday as a stagiaire for Israel Premier Tech on a day when, of course, war broke out in Israel. So um, a very important victory as well, symbolically, for that team. Um, Sheehan was the winner from a five-man group group that gone away with 21 kilometers to go featuring notably the young British finisher classics rider Lewis Askey um, who was pretty frustrated at the finish line as you can imagine he was I suppose the favorite from that group because he is a rider who and performs very well in bunch sprints and finally as far as racing is concerned we had the tour of Turkey starting on Sunday with Jasper Philipson taking stage one and Mark Cavendish is back in action there although I've been told that he's won't he probably won't be contesting sprints there. He's look, looking upon it more as a training camp, as a very early training camp for next year. Uh, Torf Hainan finished yesterday with the GC victory for Oscar Sevilla, a mere 47 summers young little Oscar. Um, Rob, you said that that's the most prestigious, strictly speaking, that's the most prestigious stage win he's ever triumphed in. Stage race win. Yeah, he took a what is now the world to a stage win in Catalonia. Um, but yeah, it's 17 years after he won his first stage race in Asturias, it's his sixth GC title. And now that Tour of Hainan has been given this pro series ranking by the UCI, it's above all the 2.1s that he won before. So strictly speaking, even probably the competition has been more competitive previously. It was his best ever stage race. We're not bad for a 47-year-old. And that was... An- nice little appetizer for what will be the final world tour stage race of the season tour of Guangxi which starts later in the week can I just say one other thing about Paris Tour because it was actually a really entertaining race uh, the parkour itself looks very attractive Daniel you would have loved the light the vineyards and uh, it's certainly as a spectacle I think much improved on the old sort of end of season sprint uh, consolation prize that, that it kind of evolved into um, Parry Tour. But Lewis Askey was in that early break, as you say, but then up the road on his own for around 30 kilometres before the small group came back up to him, which had his Group Armour FDJ teammate Olivier Legac in it. And then, I mean, I think Legac and Askey kind of, uh, they, they clearly, well, initially Askey was working for Legac, that made sense. And then at a certain point, it, uh, there's sort of... Um, uh, the hierarchy sort of switched back again, I suspect, because Askey has the faster finish of the two and Legac was working for him. And yeah, I guess just the fatigue of having been out in front all day, but that crucially, that bit on his own up the road probably was the difference for Askey. Great win for Sheehan, but the fact that it didn't all come back together for the likes of Christophe Laporte or Arnaud Demar did make it quite a thrilling finale. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. 
But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Didn't do too well there on keeping the news roundup, the newly restyled, reconfigured news roundup, keeping it tight, concise, a mere 25 minutes, 26 minutes, something like that. Chaps, can we sum up Tour of Lombardy in 52 seconds? I've, I've settled on that as the time I'm going to give us. Um, that was Tade Pogacar's margin of victory at Il Lombardia at the weekend. Don't really mean we have to do it in 52 seconds. That'll be very difficult. But it was his 63rd win of his career, of the Tade Pogacar era. 17th win of the season. Who wants to kick us off? Thoughts on the latest Pogcineration? Can we sum it up in under five hours, 55 minutes and 33 seconds, which was his winning... We'd, we'd winning probably time. struggle, to be honest. <laughs> we might struggle, mightn't we? Well, the race rolled out from Como at the very start. Um, no, Tadej Pogacar is... Uh, well, he has a 100% record in Il Lombardia, the grown-up version anyway. He's won three in a row. Uh, extraordinary. He's really got the number of the race, hasn't he? And, well, he's one day monuments record is equally staggering isn't it i think uh well he crashed out of liege baston liege earlier this season didn't he but he won um the tour of flanders i think his worst ever monument result other than that uh, did not finish in liege earlier this season is 18th in his debut liege baston liege a few years ago so uh, he really well he's he's as Francois Thomas, our very good friend, says, he is the best all-round bike rider in the world. And I think on a on a course like the, this Il Lombardia course, Como to Bergamo, which is really like a kind of Giro d'Italia medium mountain stage, isn't it? It's not not really like a kind of classic classic. Um, it was a Im- very impressive performance, and the way that he won it was was pretty surprising, wasn't it? Kind of ghosting away on the, the full flat slash descent but the way he rode that final uh, big climb was impressive that in fact his UAE team Emirates teammate Adam Yates was instrumental as well and I suppose it serves as a warning particularly to Primoz Roglic that being in the, the second of the, the the key groups as the pair of them found themselves quite surprisingly when it sort of split up just because Pogacar was there with him was absolutely no insurance policy whatsoever, was it? Because Pogacar rode across the gap. Roglic uh, couldn't go with him at that point. And then Pogacar, whether it was as clearly sort of thought out as it looked, I don't know. But it was kind of textbook, paint by numbers, wasn't it? Because as soon as Roglic got himself back up to the Pogacar group, um, you know, Adam Yates had been back on the front, setting the pace to make it as hard as possible for Roglic to get back on. And then as soon as Roglic was within touching distance, Pogacar made a move. And really then it was one of those ones where all of a sudden it was obvious that he was going to solo to the finish. He even had time to cramp up a bit and, and deal with that uh, with around 10 or 11 kilometres to go. But one of those races where I was left thinking, what could anyone have done differently? because all of the kind of the menu of tactical options um, look pretty unappealing and unlikely to succeed. 
Um, because I suspect if they'd gone to the finish with him, he may well have been the fastest in the sprint anyway. Well, that's the problem, isn't it? You talk about menu of options. The problem with Pogacar is he's got the sort of the, the taster menu, the <laughs> plat du jour, the buffet, the breakfast buffet. He can, he, he can, he, he can, I mean, he, he can win in a, in various different uh, ways and I actually thought it was quite a big risk that he took in committing to that move because simply because it would have been so hard to stop him if he, if they had gone to the finish in that group together um, I didn't see really maybe Roglic was going to trouble him and um, Bajoli we'd seen at Gran Piemonte is fast and he's getting better and more confident all the time but I thought it was um, it was it's quite surprising that he committed there, Rob. Perhaps, yes. But, I mean, if you think back to two years ago when he won his first Gio di Lombardia, he was away over the Paso di Ganda. He was on the descent from Selvino and it's 19 hairpins. We know how difficult that has been down the years in professional cycling. And he made a bit of a mess of it. Not a massive disaster, sort of Thibaut Pinot a few years ago style. He made a little bit of a mess of it. He was caught by Fausto Masnada. Okay, he still won the sprint in a good demonstration of what you were just talking about there. He's won two two-up sprints there, but this time he'd been back. He actually set the Strava record climbing Paso de Ganda on the Friday to show us all he was in great form, but he'd done his homework on the descent and it just shows that he's not all about just pure talent, is he? He does work. He does try and improve and he improved a heck of a lot to get there and you mentioned the tactics as well with UAE Emirates. I think actually throughout this Italian period, they've been spot on. Yes, there have been a really couple of good wins for Sudal Quickstep this week, and we know that they'll have fire in their bellies after what's been happening. But, you know, they've won with loads of different riders, haven't they? Yates has taken a big win over in Canada leading up into it. We've seen victories for the likes of Fordamolo as well. Here she's been up there, as you mentioned. He's been having a fantastic time. So I've been really impressed because Ulysses played his role in races as well. They've all had their opportunity and they've all worked together. And they had that chance with Yates behind, as you mentioned, with here she coming across before that rather strange crash on the back wheel of Remco Evenepoel as well. Um, but today Pogaccia worked hard and just to build on what you were saying at the start there his numbers Lionel which were really impressive a couple of other things to add you mentioned that he won the Tour of Flanders the Ronde of Flanders is only the third man in history to win it and win the Jodi Lombardi in the same season you've got to go back to Rick von Loy in 1959 and Henny Cowper in 1981 as the others and Pogaccia with this three time in a row this hat trick joined a very special club and listen to these names, because if you're on Italian roads and you're in this sort of same sentence, even at the age of 25, with so much more still to ride, he joins only Alfredo Binda in the 1920s and the great Fausto Coppi in the 1940s as winners on three occasions. If he comes back next year and does the same, he will join Coppi on four wins in a row. And just the other three-time winners, not many of those as either, and plenty of legends in this. Bartali did it three times. Girardengo did it three times, as well as our good mate Kelly. Cunego, the most recent, Belloni and Pellissier. So... There's a lot of ways we can talk about Pogaccio and we're probably running out of sort of sentences and things, how to put it all into perspective. But I think just reeling across the names of the past who've done things similarly puts him right up there, doesn't it? We are very, very lucky to be watching what we're watching at the minute. 
Yeah, um, Lionel, you mentioned there what Francois had said. What, what, did, what was Francois's uh, epithet? He was the best. He's the best rider. He's the best bike rider in the world. I mean, he might not um, necessarily be the best in the Tour de France, where he's been undone by Jonas Vingegaard. But he's, you know, his breadth of talent is is well, it spans. Uh, to such an extent that talking about Pogacar potentially winning all five of the monuments is is not ludicrous. I mean, Paris-Roubaix would be the trickiest to win, but um, certainly by no means is that out of his, uh, you know, out of his reach. And, you know, Rob, sorry, if you're talking historical numbers now, only 15 riders have won more monuments than Pogacar. He's, he's got five in total and, you know, you could easily see him winning another another couple next year. And he would be then well in the top 10 of riders of all time already. That's five out of 12 starts as well. I mean, his, his strike rate's ridiculous. I mean, he'll be opening the batting for Slovenia next at the World Cup, won't he? I mean, I was, I, uh, the reason I, I mentioned uh, what Francois said, Lionel, was that, you know, I said, I remember in our podcast, I think it was the um, Hayen Paraiso Interior race, which was the first race I think he mm. won this season, the gravel race. Um, I remember saying in the podcast we did after that, he's the best bike rider I've ever seen by some distance. And that was... Um, it, you know that, that that sort of it came to me spontaneously as I was watching that race that day for him to you know just pick up where he'd left off in 2022 and to come in straight away and be that competitive not only competitive but dominant and he's certainly well he's lived up to that this season there's going to be there'll be an interesting debate there already is an interesting debate about who has been the best rider this season it seems extraordinary that we should even will be questioning that it is Pogacar but of course there are a few riders that have had superlative season Vingegaard of course Roglic has won pretty much everything he's raced um, as far as stage races are concerned apart from of course the Vuelta and then he finished third in Lombardy at the weekend um, Van der Poel of course um, just again looking at the stats um, pro cycling stats um, they published or they'd worked out the number of points ranking points per race day and Pogacar is way way ahead on that score he's only raced 49 days but number of pro cycling ranking points per day 67 the next best is Evanderport 41 then Vingegaard 40 Roglic 39 Vanderpool 37 but chaps I'm I'm also really curious now looking ahead to next year I mean I've talked before on the podcast about how you know, if we use Merckx as our benchmark and without necessarily comp- comparing the two, but a pattern you often see with the dominant rider of an era is that they slowly become more conservative. And these long solo raids, um, they they sort of morph or they change into a more conservative style of racing. And, and although it's kind of paradoxical, although Pogacar's win at Lombardy at the weekend was the first time he's won solo at Lombardy with such a long solo raid... Um, it, it did seem to me a little bit more conservative in the sense they didn't dr- drop everyone on the main climb of the day, the Paso de Ganda. And it, have we seen this year him become slightly more of, well, he's leaned a little bit more into his explosive abilities, his fast finishing abilities. Um, you know, it seems quite a long time ago that he won by three minutes at Le Grand Bournon in the Tour de France, where he was dropping everyone by minutes um, on climbs in the Tour de France. I just wonder whether, and it, and this also, you know, we'll get an indication of this maybe from his race program when we find out more about 
that next year. I do wonder whether there were talks with RCS. I'm sure there were probably talks with RCS um, at the weekend because that, that it has been mooted that the Giro Vuelta may be an option. And I, I expect him to have a, a heavy classics program next year again but what where do you see would has he started to kind of fork off in maybe a slightly different direction do we think i see the giro being something that that's going to happen and i think i think it needs to happen doesn't it it's very strange maybe that it, it hasn't been i'm not a fan of the tour being the only thing in cycling I, and i realize for marketing reasons it is for a lot of people but being in such a strong team with other people who can ride the tour and given what's in front of them in terms of competition as well, I, I would find it very strange if he didn't bother having a go at the Giro for the next five years. And also, we know that RCS like to think they have pulling power. They, they, they nag away until people do things. There might also be other incentives involved. We never know. Um, there certainly will be other incentives involved. <laughs> I'm glad you've I said I think it. we can say, it's pretty safe to say, it's pretty safe to say that if Tadej Pogacar goes to the Giro d'Italia, there will have been a significant financial incentive offered i mean even just on sporting terms he did say in his final tour de france press conference that he would like one day to ride and hopefully win the giro i think we talked about this at the start of the year when we were we were kind of asking why he started his race at um you know a, a, an interesting but relatively a small race the uh, high-end Paleso. uh and i think daniel you may have made the point that he likes to mix things up you know not he doesn't want to write the same book every year, so to speak. And uh, so it will be interesting to see what he chooses to do. He's got, I guess, um, you know, he's still got Milan Sanremo to to try and win. That's that's a tricky one. I think he'll have a, a, a very full spring classic campaign again. Uh, and I mean, just looking at, you know, he is obviously... Even with Vingegaard having won two in a row, he 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 would almost certainly go into a Tour de France as sort of joint favourite anyway, despite the fact that he hasn't won it for a, a few years. But he's actually made himself a one-day rider extraordinaire. I think his worst result in a one-day race this year is fifth, and that was at Tre Valle in the week leading up to Il Lombardia. That is an incredible a streak of consistency that doesn't just speak to his sort of athletic brilliance, but also to how mentally switched on he is. Every time he rides, he's riding for uh, for the win, uh, whether it's a, a big race or a small race. And uh, it's it's that kind of drive um, that, that I wonder how long uh, somebody can just keep that up. But then I watch the the way, you know, he kind of has a sort of parallel parallel life to the life of being a team leader and a potential Tour de France winner. And he does seem to wear the burden a lot lighter than some of his, um, you know, fellow uh, brilliant riders. You know, he, he does... He does seem to take the rough with the smooth. Not that there's been an awful lot of rough. Uh, the, the crash at Liège, Baston Liège, probably the the lowest point of of his season. But even when he was beaten in the World Championships, you know the disappointment was there for everyone to see that you know third place was not what he lined up for. But he kind of shakes it off a little bit, you know, with a with a kind of a a, a, a spirit that I don't necessarily see from from some other riders who wear their disappointment a little bit more obviously, perhaps. Chaps, uh, Lombardy was, we know, we've already mentioned it, it was also the last dance for several riders, not just one, the the, the most sort of well-documented 
well celebrated at the weekend, uh, Thibaut Pinot. Um, it was also the last race, and we weren't a hundred percent sure about this at the time after the race because he gave a couple of interviews that seemed still a little bit ambiguous. But uh, Imanol Erviti, the powerhouse of a Movistar domestic after 19 seasons I think with that team he decided that this was going to be his last season there are a couple of others there may well have been a couple of sort of last dances last races we don't yet know about because there, there may well be some riders in that Lombardy peloton who well didn't intend for it to be their last race but it may well end up being that especially with all the uncertainty about the the world tour teams next year but um We've said a lot about Pino already. We said a lot last week, chaps. Um, anything that particularly struck you about the whole sort of party and ceremony um, over the weekend? Yeah, I mentioned his mum earlier. His mum, who had, well, she was there to welcome this new goat into the fold, uh, Vittoria. Um, there were lots of good interviews with Thibaut Pino. There was an excellent one from uh, with uh, Pierre Carré in Le Temps, a Swiss newspaper. I saw a, a quite a funny interview with his mum or a quote from his mum at the weekend as well, talking about how she was completely mystified by all of this adulation or this hero worship because she said Thibaut's not even very nice with his fans or he hasn't been in the past because he doesn't, you know, he doesn't like being at the centre of attention. So he tends to sort of, when people come towards him whether it's for a selfie or an autograph he tends to sort of turn away or scurry away and hide a lot of the time but um what um what struck you at the weekend chaps about the the pino farewell and maybe uh, erviti and maybe others as well sounds like your approach to your many fans daniel as well, well there you go, there you go. <laughs> i did think it was, it was it was it was a lovely i mean not that it was going to be any other way but uh, pino was in a group of what a dozen riders we had a couple of teammates in there uh, for group armor fdj i think they were pache and mala from memory and everyone else kind of respect for kind of was to the side and, and behind and uh, Pino I'm not going to say he looked uncomfortable as a, at the center of attention there but he you know there was a there was a little pat on the back for each of his teammates and uh, it was a it was a really nice moment I mean not that many riders get that kind of send-off do they um no and it, I, th- I do it, think uh, I, I do think it would be true to say and I've touched on this before in the peloton there are riders who look upon the sort of the phenomenon, this sort of meme almost, it's a bit like Landismo with Mikel Landa, and they kind of are a little bit, they sort of turn their nose up at it. Um, because although Thibaut Pino is a generally, he's a well-liked rider, he's also very well paid. And um, th- there are riders who do feel that it's, it's, out of proportion with his achievements, with what he he deserves. But I think, generally speaking, um, people were well. They were they were glad to see him get the send off that, and, and a send off that essentially it brought fans to the road. Um, a type of fan that we don't often see in professional cycling, and it created a spectacle for everyone to enjoy. And it, there also might be a bit of a legacy of this weekend. And Mark Maddio talked about it in one of his impromptu speak. Uh, speeches at the weekend that he wants them he wants the ultra pino to well to become a a permanent fixture at big races and to sort of well to turn their support towards the team um rather than one individual of course he does of course he does I, i i think it's one of those things where you know elite sports people sometimes struggle to compute this sort of mercurial quality that some sports people have and it isn't all about winning it is about um 
you know, sort of uh, whether it's uh, fragility or, um, you know, bad luck or whatever these these little things are that become almost intangible over time. And Pino, well, as we talked about at length last week, kind of embodies that and is popular for reasons beyond just winning bike races. It also happens that uh, he does win big, has won big races. He has been in the mix in the Tour de France and it's it's one of those uh, one of those things, isn't it? The, the 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 very unlucky runner-up is often more popular than the person who wins sort of six or seven in a row. I mean, not seven in a row. I mean, no, I'm not I'm not thinking of anyone in particular. Here. <laughs> I mean, it, it's a funny sport sometimes like that, isn't it? And and it's certainly still in I would say in English-speaking countries, cycling's still you know as much as we are, are in the world and we love it and for us it's massive in the grand scheme of things it's a bit of a minority sport still and and that you do get a group of people who, who don't like pop people being popular don't like excitement i mean we've had criticism for being too excited at watching the sport and broadcasting and trying to make it entertaining um and and i can imagine that those people who maybe i feel very seen well, <laughs> i feel very seen <laughs> There are people who don't like popular things. Hmm, what are you talking about? <laughs> but I mean, you know what I mean? You know, people who, you know, and, and they have as much as right to be involved and enjoy it and what have you as everybody else, but people who concentrate on the numbers. And I can understand them not being fans of Thibaut Fino. As, as you right say, you know, he's probably, probably been paid a little too much for not doing enough down the years, but he's done a lot off the bike, his character and, and anything that gets people involved makes people smile makes people have a good time and do what we want them to do watch cycling has to be good hasn't it and it would have been it wouldn't have been right if he'd have won wouldn't it i mean we had a a wave goodbye with a taste of vintage pinot there you go well i i vividly remember midway through the 2019 tour de france which it looked as though he was going to win having numerous conversations with sort of like-minded individuals saying i hope he doesn't win because that's going to ruin it it's going to ruin the story and and at the opposite end of the scale, probably belonging to the, you know the, the sort of other type of uh, people who are who are in this big family, Emmanuel uh, Erviti, and and he didn't want to announce. I, I've tried several times this year talking to a few people at Movistar and people in and around the scene here in Spain. You know, is it his last year? Because I mean, and the reason I selfishly wanted to know because he's very close to breaking a couple of appearance records in Flanders and Roubaix and things like that. And you know, I wanted to be able to say that next year he can turn up and do this and. He's confirmed. And a, f- a few people earlier this year were saying it looks as though he's going to say goodbye. And, and even at the weekend, I think um, Dan Lloyd and I mentioned it in the commentary and, and actually put a word out for him on Oliviti, you know, saying congratulations on his career. But we still didn't know because he, he wouldn't communicate it. But again, extremely respected member of the peloton, respectable in the way that he didn't want any fanfare as well. And, you know, now that we do know, congratulations on what's been a fantastic career, really sacrificing his own chances at the service of others. And, and maybe much more like going back to the Pinot thing, like Mathieu Ladanius earlier this week, you know, went away in a quieter race on a Tuesday in Varese and decided that that, that would be that for him as well and not too much fanfare about it. A few more, uh, well, a few a li- few little things from Lombardia, I think we need to mention. Uh, Remco Evenepoel's crash, I mean, how much did that impact on, well, it certainly impacted on his ability to be in that group at the key moment. Um, I thought he did very well to finish ninth because, you know, he was he was uh, drifting backwards with Julian Alaphilippe um, just in front of him. And uh, there were a couple of other things that I wanted to mention because uh, last week I 
speculated that Ben Healy and Richard Carapaz were looking pretty good for EF education and, and might be a factor in the race. And Ben Healy and Oscar Onley um, were, well, they were key instigators in the kind of the, the, the advance move, weren't they? Carapaz finished eighth, a very good result, especially considering he was down in that crash with 64 kilometres to go. And Mikel Lander was probably the uh, the heaviest faller there, wasn't he? And just lastly, because we're going to talk about the um, the merger in the next part, but uh, good to see Andrea Bagioli and Primoz Roglic merging together on the podium for Sudal Quickstep and Jumbo Visma. And I did wonder whether the Alexander Vlasov move on the Gandia was uh, you know, just a little marker, just a reminder uh, to Bora Hansgrohe that he is still around. Uh, he's not going to just be, he's not going to be roglified uh, before the 2024 20, season even gets underway. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Well, chaps, at the time of recording last week, uh, Sudal, Quickstep and Jumbo Visma were still poised to merge. Primoz Roglic was still a Jumbo Visma rider. Well, he's still a pre- uh, Jumbo Visma rider now, in fact, but he won't be uh, at the end of the season. Um, the other cliffhanger from last week, the episode last week, was, well, we'd been told that I was no longer allowed to do Primoz Roglic impressions. Um, we then called a referendum and um well i'm glad to say we are we, we are winning huh definitely uh, like i said that uh, not not 52 48 definitely like i said that uh, they are suffering uh, the haters you know what i mean huh it's good huh we are enjoying huh we are enjoying uh. that was not primus roglic um but we are winning the referendum and a lot of a lot of very nice messages about uh, about my primus roglic impressions so keep those coming <laughs> chaps I said that on the state of play on Thursday was that we were pretty sure, as discussed at length in last week's podcast, that Primoz Roglic was going to sign for Bora Hansgrohe. On Friday morning, we were summoned to a uh, uh, phone call, Zoom call, with Ralph Denk, the Bora Hansgrohe manager. And sure enough, it was, it had been called to announce the signing of Primoz Roglic. Um, We're going to hear now from Ralph Denk. This is him responding to my question. I asked him to, well, give us the timeline of the Roglic negotiation going back, stretching back, in fact, eight years or over eight years to a a sort of fabled, now now much much mythologised meeting in a Salzburg beer garden, their first meeting eight years ago. Bora nearly signed him then. They have signed him now. Here was Ralph Denk talking to me and other reporters on Friday. So yeah, uh, I can confirm the, the the meeting eight years ago in the beer garden in Salzburg. And uh, it was not just the meeting, we placed the offer as well eight years ago. And uh, yesterday uh, in my office, I found this offer again. It's a really nice story. Are you paying it more now? Is the offer today bigger than the one eight years ago? It's bigger and I can tell you... Uh, if you make uh, a, a zero again to the number, is not enough. I heard uh, uh, from the rumors uh, of the merge of, or, or of the pos- uh, possibility uh, of the merge from uh, Sudal Gwikstep and uh, Jumbo Fisma in, in in the final week of Vuelta. And uh, I listened as well very detailed uh, to the interviews uh, of Primoz. Or I was uh, find out he is not really 
happy anymore because yeah, it's understandable. A Jumbo uh, Jumbo Visma uh, looking forward for the leadership uh, with uh, Jonas Winnegard. But younger is two times to the first champion. Okay. On the other hand, yeah, I think Primoz was not really happy uh, how things run in the Vuelta. And uh, yeah, I asked him, he was open to talk from the Vuelta on. Uh, yeah, uh, the things uh, goes uh, quite quick and uh, we can achieve, uh, or we was able to achieve then uh, until yesterday the, the, the final signature of him. Uh, Red Bull is uh, involved in our team since some years and is a project partnership. We call it project partnership. Uh, we had the first, uh, the first project was uh, with uh, Anton Palzer's transformation from a Shima engineering to a pro cyclist. The second is uh, the project of the Junior Brothers. This is a scouting project with uh, a Red Bull and Borans, what we launched together. Uh, the third project is uh, the APC Athlete Performance Center, where uh, we can use for our medical uh, uh, tests, our scouts use as well the Athlete Performance Center. And that's it. No more, no less. Uh, for sure, I can confirm that the, um, the deal with Primoz is not founded by Red Bull and uh, is founded by us. Uh, not by uh, other sponsors or additional sponsors or currently sponsors. So, uh, yeah, our economically uh, balance uh, was quite positive in the last years. And uh, yeah, we had some uh, some money on the bank. That money we use for this deal. I mentioned this goal uh, often. My personal goal to have, to have uh, once a year uh, to win the tour uh, is a dream uh, for me personally. And uh, yeah, now was the chance to took one of the biggest contender. Realistic as well is not the only one contender. So uh, we need luck. We need a super strong team. We need a, a outstanding performance from Roglic. But uh, it's already a nice uh, feeling for me, for the whole team, to be a contender, a real contender. And uh, that's hopefully give the whole team, not just the riders, the whole staff, an extra push uh, and uh, inspiring. Got the feeling uh, with Primoz uh, in the last days, he's really a personality. He can... Uh, inspire our team and with his professional uh, professional uh, attitude is uh, really, in my opinion, outstanding talent and I'm so happy to have him. So chaps, that was Ralph Denk um, clearing up a few things about the Roglic deal. No involvement, no extra involvement from Red Bull on top of what they are already committing to uh, Bora Hansgrohe. Denk there talking about his dream of winning the Tour de France. We talked about it last week, didn't we? Um, how plausible that dream is or will be with Primoz Roglic. And well, as I alluded to at the start of this section... Last, well, still on Friday, in fact, we were under the impression that this much trumpeted, ballyhooed, talked about merger between Sudar Quickstep and Jumbo Visma might yet go ahead. A lot of confusion over the last two weeks, two or three weeks. I, I think that is, you know, one of the key takeaways from this is that it's been a very mm, unstable and destabilizing two or three weeks. A very anxious one for a lot of riders, in particular a lot of Sudar Quickstep riders. The state of play last week when we recorded was that, well, we talked about the Sudar Quickstep riders being 
um, in a really invidious position, in a really horrible position, a lot of them, because it looked as though they might be dumped effectively, um, that they weren't going to be required, their services wouldn't be required by this new team. And they might still get paid, but they might not get a ride next year. And then we had a story about Patrick Lefebvre trying to build a life raft for them, salvage them with a new team, with sort of scaled down ambitions. And then on Friday, the news that it was all off. Um, it was back. It was as you were, chaps. Pseudo quick step on one side of the of the Benelux ledger and Jumbo Visma on the other. And then we also heard that Amazon, who had been mooted as a co-sponsor for what will be we well what is at the moment Jumbo Visma they had also pulled out and we've not really heard too much I haven't heard too much over the weekend chaps um different to any of that of you no but this is just highlighting that speculation until we have some facts is just quite a lot of hot air isn't it I mean there's been a, a lot of energy expended on the, the potential merger I mean we got caught up in it as well quite exciting really wasn't it I mean you know yes there was going to be uh, there were going to be some casualties if a merger had gone ahead but uh, you know it was it was interesting and uh, the fact that it's just kind of as you were as you say Daniel and now Primoz Roglic is leaving to join another team I think it does leave the kind of the grand tour picture actually looking a lot healthier than it might have done had there been a merger and it did make me wonder you know is this quartet because the big four are now going to be in different teams Jonas Vingegaard will still be in Jumbo Visma or whatever they end up being called today Pogacar in UAE of course Roglic, Bora Hansgrohe and Remco Evenepoel in Sudal Quickstep is this big four bigger than the last big four of Nibali, Froome, Quintana and Contador? I certainly think it's more dynamic. It's more dynamic. It's more exciting. I think it's more evenly matched. I think there's more star quality amongst this big four. No? I mean, are we going to have to revive the the, the big four? Um, whatever whatever we called the... Did we, did we call them the big four last time? I can't remember. I would say so, Lionel. Um, that felt like a bit of a, a fake news big four back in the day certainly with hindsight certainly with the benefit of hindsight it was a bit of a mismatch at times wasn't mm. it um, yeah maybe that's what I mean because between them I mean incredibly impressive Palmares all four of those Nibali, Froome, Quintana and Contador um, I think I haven't totted them all up but uh, they have declared uh, on a higher t- collective total of Grand Tour victories than the current big four have but the current big four are obviously you know, approach at or approaching the top of their game, aren't they? And uh, well, maybe maybe Rog has just kind of gone over the top of the the final climb and is about to start the descent. But uh, I guess that's Bora Hansgrohe's issue to deal with, isn't it? They've got two years to squeeze some more juice out of the yeah, and, and maybe of, build out, a bridge. Out of Rog's legs. Yeah, there was there was a bit of concern. There was a bit of concern on the part of Kian Utebrooks's well, growing legion of fans that Primoz Roglic arriving might deny him opportunities. I also asked Ralph Denk about this, and he said he'd, he'd personally spoken to Vlasov, uh, Danny Martinez, who's joining the team, Kian Utebrooks. Um, I think he mentioned a couple of others, um, Jai Hindley as well, maybe even Leonard Kemner. And he'd reassured them that, well, this was going to be a good thing. And he said they'd all agreed 
Um, they were all pretty enthusiastic about Roglic joining. He also addressed the perceived lack of ruler power in the team. A lot of people have looked at the transfer market and assumed that Bora will want to reinforce in that area, area because, of course, they've lost Niels Pollitt. They look a little bit under... Well, under endowed in that respect. They've got Mark Haller, um, sorry, Marco Haller, um, Ralph Denk mentioned, Nico Dents, of course, and Bob Jungels is a very good ruler. If one of those three was to have a problem, though, I think they would be in a bit of trouble. So I think they probably will look to reinforce. There are other riders, um, Danny Van Poppel and a couple of others who could certainly do a job. Um, in that role. Um, but chaps, just on, well, Lionel, you said, well, we both said, as you were, the, the rumours haven't stopped. Remco Avenepoel, he parachuted into the Tour of Lombardy and a lot of people were, were curious to hear what he was going to say about the merger and also about his future because that issue is far from, or seemed to be far from settled, far from resolved. I had a message from one of our very good friends and colleagues, Belgian journalist on Saturday morning who put it to me that the Remco Ineos deal was well poised to be sealed and Remco was definitely going to Ineos and the last domino had to only had to fall into place and it was probably the bike sponsor issue and Pinarello maybe being replaced by Specialized and well no sooner had I received that message than Remco Evenepoel pretty much after the race had said no I'm definitely staying has that issue, has that question been put to bed now? I'm not sure. I had another message late last week from a rider saying, you won't believe the rumour that I've just heard. Well, Van Aert's going to Ineos, definitely. Um, I made a few calls after that and pretty much, pretty much been able to rule that out. Is this a bit like seeing Dimitar Berbatov's brother in a petrol station on the way to to London before transfer deadline day? Um, but what a bizarre situation, fellas. What a completely bizarre situation. And I'm not sure who's come out of it well, who hasn't. I'm pretty sure that Bora and Skor obviously have been, have been strengthened. The fans have come out of it pretty well, despite quite a lot of worry, because, like you say, there's going to be weather even... You know, even with the Remco Evenepoel question, he's certainly not going to Jumbo Visma. And I think I said, actually, when this was... Ha- even if the merger happened, I could not see Remco Evenepoel in the same team as Jonas Vingegaard because wherever Remco Evenepoel goes, he has to be the number one. So that leaves him either staying at Sudal Quickstep or moving on. But, I mean, what an awful situation for the staff. We're talking about the riders here, but what about the staff? Everybody involved with Sudal Quickstep, I know that they'll have been worried. They'll have, you know, some of them... Uh, been worried about bills to pay, all sorts of stuff, contracts they'd signed. And you're talking about a team that going into Jordi Lombardia there, you know, the day before, before all this collapse news came out on, what was it, Friday tea time the night before, they'd had 55 wins this year. In their two-decade existence, they'd just picked up the 950th victory in those 20 years. Um very, very strange. Of course, a lot of reasons I think that we don't know about. You know, we don't know the genesis of all of this. Probably it was because Yumbo left as a sponsor. But again, what have Yumbo done? Maybe they've put the hornet's nest a little and it's come back to bite them in the backside. Uh, all sorts going on. Roglic on his move as well. Yumbo Visma. I mean, whether the Roglic thing was going to happen, merger or not, 
I personally think it probably did. I think after the Vuelta España, things couldn't con- continue as they were, could they? I think that's more of a, a problem. I can tell you, Rob, that the first conversations between Roglic's entourage and Richard Plugger, Marijn Zeman, the top brass at Jumbo Visma, about a separation, they occurred on the last weekend of the Vuelta. You know, there were a lot of rumours in the summer and um, little trek being linked with Roglic, but it wasn't on the table even remotely until the last weekend of the Vuelta. It had to be the Vuelta España, didn't it? It had to be the Vuelta España. And I think it had to happen, whether all of this talk about a merger um, was going to happen or not. So I don't think you can blame Jumbo Visma talking about the merger for that. But perhaps for other things, they might not have come out of it fantastically well. But they've lost their, their main man. We're talking about an organisation who's been around in different guises since, what, the 1980s. Uh, team Yombo Visma and I looked at all the victories that have been picked up by different riders Primoz Roglic is by far and away the best winner the greatest bike rider the best ambassador for their team that they've ever had and and if you take into consideration I won't mention the sport because I know for some strange reason people don't like that he's come from winter sports it's his second career um, and key jumping no, oh, Daniel, people don't, don't like you for that now. We, we get absolutely murdered every time we say that on the television. Um, but anyway, he's been a professional the already. tournaments on the horizon. Yeah, maybe, yes, maybe. But he's been a professional elsewhere. Talent transfer, and this is one for another pod. This is one for a winter pod. But I cannot remember any other athlete in history, off the top of my head at least, who's had as much success or even more success in a second career in, in talent transfer. It's a, it's a big one and an interesting one. I think we should try and explore because... I can name a cyclist that's had, that's a more impressive example of talent transfer than Primoz Roglic. Cameron Worth. In terms of what results achieved, possibly. But, but are they... And that's three sports, Rob. That's, that's three, three sports, sports that's but rowing, they're interrelated. Does cycling, that count? Cycling and triathlon. Anyway, this, is a, anyway, this feels like a discussion for another season. I think it's a very good winter pod. But listen to this. Because nobody since the 1980s has taken as many victories as Primoz Roglic for them. Over 70 wins. 74, I think. 73 or 74. Closest, before he left the team, was Dylan Grunewega. He had around 50 wins. And then you think of the riders they've had down the years. One of Daniel's idols, Freire. There was Decker. There's Fanart, Vingegaard, Bochert. You realise just how important he's been. Um, so that is a huge loss for the team. Yes, you can question about where he's in his career. Lionel, you alluded to that. I personally think there's still much more to come. You don't have a season with results like this if you're on the way. And I mean, what was it? Played three in the one day as he won one and he was not far from the win in the others. Top fives, top tens. And only in stage racing, that situation in the Vuelta is the time that he, that he didn't win a race. So um, a bizarre situation over the last couple of weeks. Lots of plot twists still to come and plots of plot twists that have happened I think that we'll only find out the reasoning behind in the next few months yeah and Roglic takes that winning power to Bora Hansgrohe doesn't he he will he will guarantee some victories you would think and you know there's no sign of a sudden decline if he stays clear of illness and injury Uh, in terms of squeezing him into what is a a team with a lot of that kind of um, I don't want to say second tier Grand Tour talent because you know Jai Hindley I think 
as a, as a Giro d'Italia champion, deserves better than that. Uh, Kian Outdebrooks, he is 13 years younger than Roglic, so it's not exactly stepping on his toes. And I guess it is Alexander Vlasov who probably will feel like his room to move has been, he has been uh, squeezed a fair bit. But then, you know, Vlasov, for all of his top results, doesn't win. He hasn't won a race this year. He hasn't won a race since the Tour of Romandy in May 2022. So, you know, Vlasov is 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 not going to out-rog-rog, rog, is he? And just as we're talking about the dust settling, you know, Sudal Quickstep, I'm sure, will uh, carry on uh, as they were. But the one big story which we could probably pick up in the next couple of podcasts is what exactly is going on at Ineos Grenadiers because uh, maybe they're not going to take Wavenart, but they're going to need some bike riders because at the moment, confirmed, they have about half a team on, uh, you know, signed on officially for next season. So there's going to have to be some movement into there and they look pretty light in all areas at the moment. And it's not like, you know, we're, we're coming up to mid-October. Um, so there's going to have to be, I would have thought, some kind of buying out going we on. We will see, huh? Well, hang on. Roglic isn't going to suddenly break his contract to Bora Hansgrohe and end up at Ineos Grenadiers, is he? Three hours, 22 minutes. I think that concludes <laughs> today's podcast. <laughs> Rob, it's been a pleasure as always. Lionel, no more. What have you got to... What, you're raising your finger. Go what? on, let him. In, you're allowed more to, injury time nowadays, yeah. aren't you? Come on. 10 minutes have just been <laughs> held up. <laughs> I need We're a coming VAR. up to the Pasagandia in... <laughs> Pasoganda. <laughs> I, I just having 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 talked about uh, you know pretty much every superlative possible about Tadej Pogacar. I would like to just deduct two or three monuments for the angle of his brake levers. I just think this uh, performance-wise, I'm sure all the scientists out there Stop will say it's, it's uh, far more efficient. It's progress. It just looks terrible. Ah, oh, terrible, terrible. No, it doesn't. Just doesn't look great that's that's all uh, but Daniel we'll be back next week won't we when we'll be talking I guess about Tade, the don't 2024 Tade, Tade, don't let the old man tell you how to have your handlebars you do what you want you're doing fine son chaps thank you very much um, it's been a long one again and Lionel you'll be back next week I'll probably be back I'm going to some races this week in the Veneto in Italy um, but I'll probably be back as well and Rob we'll be talking to you no doubt very soon ciao The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burney.